Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 113 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me today is... Nobody, except the ghosts of the past, I am afraid. Michelle is sick, and she has lost her voice. She sounds uh, kind of like this. So, we couldn't make you guys a Dermosphere episode this time around. Sorry. So, instead, we decided to have another one of our best of episodes. We did this once before, again, when Michelle was sick. Why is it always Michelle who gets sick? Probably because she's nicer than me, and she volunteers in free clinics and things, and does a lot of hospital work. Anywho, we decided that this time around we would do some archival footage from our episodes featuring trials that got new dermatologic drugs approved. It seems like there's been a lot of new dermatology drug approvals in the last couple of years. For example, we've had Roflumilast and Tapinarov, which are topicals for psoriasis. There's been baricitinib and ritlicitinib for alopecia areata, as well as ruxolitinib cream for vitiligo, and then keeping the JAK inhibitor train rolling, upadacitinib and abrocitinib for atopic dermatitis, plus just recently was approved this medicine called Wycanth, which is a cantharidin drug device delivery system for molluscum. Yes, something approved for molluscum. We're going to discuss that in a future episode, uh, but for now, I hope you will enjoy some blasts from the past as we discuss or re- we revisit some of our discussions of trials that got some of these new medications approved. Please enjoy. This is another big um, randomized controlled trial. This was published in The Lancet and it's called Once Daily Upadacitinib versus Placebo in Adolescents and Adults with Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis, Measure Up 1 and Measure Up 2, results from two replicate double-blind randomized controlled phase 3 trials. Um, these are giant multi-center international studies. The authors include Emma Gutman, Yasky, and Alan Irvine, um, Eric Simpson, old uh, mentor of mine, uh, from OHSU days, also on the study here. So these are the trials that's going to get this medicine, upadacitinib, approved for atopic dermatitis in adolescents, in adolescents and adults. So the upshot, upadacitinib is a pill, it works for atopic dermatitis, and it has few side effects. So you're going to see it on the market pretty soon, I think. So upadacitinib, I might just start calling it upa. Like a polka <laughs> is a, a jack inhibitor. So jack, if you haven't heard of it, J-A-K. So many cell signaling pathways, including lots of interleukin, signal through this jack stat pathway. Uh, jack actually stands for Janus kinase. I think we talked about this uh, many episodes ago, but Janus is this Roman god of like thresholds. Mm-hmm. So he's got two faces, one looking forward and one looking back. So if you see pictures of him, he's like basically got another face on the back of his head. So one looking in each direction out the door, basically. And the molecules are named after Janus because they also somehow have two active sites or something. Yes, we reviewed in episode 31, um, an article about Janus kinase inhibitors working in morphia. So they were actually using them to prevent gliomycin-induced fibrosis in mice. It was a very sciencey article from the Journal of Investigative Dermatology. All right. So they have lots of different applications. Um, so interleukins play 
are particularly important atopic dermatitis. There are some in particular like interleukin-4, interleukin-13. Those you probably remember, ding, ding, are the interleukins that are blocked by dupilumab, which is currently the only systemic medication out there on the market approved for atopic dermatitis. Um, IL-31, considered to be the itch cytokine, is also important in atopic dermatitis and also signals through the JAK-STAT pathway. So there's a number of different JAK receptors, and four of them are of particular pharmaceutical importance. There's JAK1, JAK2, and JAK3, and then there's one called TYK, or TIC. So UPA has greater affinity for JAK1 than for the others, which is thought to be good for the atopic dermatitis-relevant cytokines, and it's already approved for rheumatoid arthritis in this country. By the way, there's another JAK inhibitor, abrocitinib, that is selective for JAK1 that's also in trials for atopic dermatitis and is looking good. So this study here out of the Lancet reports two big multi-center international randomized placebo-controlled phase three trials. They were called Measure Up 1 and Measure Up 2. So actually not that dissimilar from the trial you just described with the collagenases. There were actually a similar number of patients too, about 850. They were age 12 and up, so adolescents were involved. They all had moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, and they were assigned to one of three arms, upadacitinib 15 milligrams daily, or 30 milligrams daily, or to placebo. They could not use topicals while they were on these medications. And UPA was way better across all metrics. The 30 milligrams was a bit better than the 15 milligrams, though they point out in the article, and I'm not sure why, that no statistical analyses were performed to compare the two groups specifically, the 15 versus 30 milligram group. So we're not sure if the extra improvement from 30 milligrams was statistically significant. I don't know why they didn't run those numbers, but there you go. Um, Upadacitinib seemed to start working as early as the first week, and some patients noted improvement in their itch within days. The medication seemed to reach max effect between week four and week eight, and the trials continued up to week 16 where they stopped this particular trial, but there is an ongoing extension, which um, will get published later on. So people got better on upadacitinib, but they mostly didn't clear completely. So some of the metrics they used, and they used quite a few of them. So the easy score, E-A-S-I, I think we've mentioned that on the podcast before is a measure of eczema severity, and it's something that you can kind of grade in clinic. But despite the name, it is not easy to calculate, so it's used <laughs> mostly in trials. So easy 75 is kind of like passy 75 in psoriasis. So easy 75 means you got 75% or more improvement in your easy score, okay? So you can basically think that that's somebody getting 75% better in terms of their eczema. So at week 16, 70% of patients in the upadacitinib 15 milligram arm achieved an easy 75, 80% in the 30 milligram group, and only 16% in placebo. And then all the other metrics, things like quality of life and itch and um, you know depression, anxiety scores, all were very similar. They also looked at easy 90, so basically 90% improvement in your easy score, 90% improvement in your eczema, perhaps. About 50% of people in the UPA groups and easy 100, basically clearing, remember they couldn't use topicals, so clear just on drug was about 20%. So, wow. you know, not not very many still, but one in five people, it's not, not too shabby. Uh, the adverse effects were mild. There were no new safety risks compared with its use in rheumatoid arthritis, though there were a few new emergent side effects that didn't show up so much in the RA trial. So acne was one of them. 
So 7% in the 50 milligram group, 17% in the 30 milligram group, and only 2% in the placebo group got acne. URIs, upper respiratory tract infections, 9% and 13% in the UPA groups, 7% in placebo. Nasopharyngitis, the numbers were 8 and 12% in the UPA groups and 6% in placebo. Elevation in creatine phosphokinase, hmm, 6% hmm. in both upadacitinib groups and 3% in the placebo group. What's going on there? Well, they were asymptomatic and they were associated with exercise. They did say there was a single case of rhabdomyolysis that was reported in a 23-year-old man in the 15-milligram group. He had elevated CPK, no change in his renal function. Perhaps there was this inciting factor of jet skiing <laughs> within the good life. He had muscle pain and cramping of all four limbs. He was tired. He had fatigue. All of his symptoms resolved within four days, but they stopped the upadacitinib there. So, you know, that's the story with that particular guy. Um, lymphopenia. So they were measuring, measuring people's labs. A few people got lymphopenia, neutropenia, but it seemed to be transient and just get better. Remember, this was done over the past year or so um, during the COVID pandemic. They did report <laughs> that there were things that they did to keep everybody safe and comply with guidelines like courier drugs to people and do telehealth appointment for follow up and things. And nobody got COVID. That's Woo nice. Possible limitation patients were mostly white, 66%, or Asian, 23%. So maybe that limits this drug's um, ability to impact other groups. Um, other tidbits. So, you know, there, there it is. It works. It's pretty safe. Um, I was not sure that I knew all of this, that adults with atopic dermatitis have an increased risk of some other stuff like GI issues, inflammatory bowel disease, alopecia areata, vitiligo, chronic spontaneous urticaria, and also rheumatoid arthritis. And many of the approximately 30 known atopic dermatitis-associated genetic loci are implicated in other autoimmune diseases. Well, they say hmm. uh, other immune-mediated diseases, I'm sorry, not necessarily autoimmune. Not sure I knew all of that stuff. So this is coming, and... You know, only 20% of people with EZ100 is, you know, a minor, significant minority. So I was like, is this medicine really that good? It's going to get compared to dupilumab a lot, of course. So I looked into the comparisons a bit. So first of all, upadacitinib's a pill and dupilumab's a shot. Upadacitinib's mm -hmm. something you would have to take once or twice a day. Dupilumab's something you just take every two weeks or maybe even every four weeks if you're a kid. So everybody's going to have their own opinion about that. But I assume most people are going to want to take a pill instead of get a shot. Um, and the dupilumab trials, easy 75 at week 16, was achieved by about 50% of patients. So in that sense, upadacitinib does look a bit better because the numbers are higher. Remember, we had 70 and 80% of people get, get to that point. Um, though, you know, it's tough to compare them directly. Populations aren't necessarily similar, blah, blah, blah. Monitoring is also something to think about. So basically, you don't need to do any monitoring in dupilumab. It's a very safe medication. Um, according to the website UpToDate, monitoring guidelines for upadacitinib are to get a CBC and LFTs at baseline and, quote, periodically, whatever that means, lipid levels at 12 weeks, and then again, periodically. And they recommend that you screen for hepatitis and tuberculosis before starting. There was no recommendations for screening creatine phosphokinase, even though apparently it can be elevated. So I don't know what you're supposed to do about that. Um, since this is already approved for rheumatoid arthritis, you can just go buy this medicine if you want to try to get it for your atopic dermatitis patients. It's out there. The brand name, at least for its RA indication, is Rinvoke. 
R-I-N-V-O-Q. And you can buy 30 15 milligram tablets for $5,500, according to GoodRx. Um, a shot of dupilumab is probably about 3500 Most adults would need two per month, so you're looking at $7,000 for that. So maybe upadacitinib is a little bit cheaper on top of it all. This is good. I mean, I am nervous because so many pathways in the body use this JAK-STAT pathway, so I kept expecting some horrible side effect to emerge as people kept using these medicines, but so far nothing has emerged. It would be awesome if it worked well and were safe. I mean, obviously, that would be awesome. I have a lot of kids with atopic dermatitis. They don't like shots. They're okay taking pills. I think that this would be um, especially nice to have available for them. So it's pretty exciting that we're moving into a world where we have um, more, not, not zero and not one, but more than one good options for people with really bad atopic dermatitis. I think it's really nice also just to have something to offer those rare patients or who are dupilumab, um, either response losers of who have lost the response to dupilumab that you can't rescue back, um, or patients who don't respond completely. But yeah, the, the Janus kinase inhibitors are opening up a whole new sort of walnut shell of different kinds of therapeutic options. And we just need to, of course, pay attention to whether or not we're messing with their important functions in the body, but it's exciting have some new products come to the market for these challenging diseases, for sure. I was dreaming about upadacitinib last night, Michelle. <laughs> Maybe that's just because I was going over this article right before bed, but I don't think I've been dreaming about a medicine lately. That's pretty exciting. So I'm going to talk about the tralokinumab phase three trials that led to its approval so that we can all decide, should we use this new drug or not? So this is from the British Journal of Dermatology. The title is Tralokinumab for Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis. Results from two 52-week randomized, double-blind, multi-center, placebo-controlled phase three trials, which had the fun names of Extra one and Extra 2 when I was a medical student, I thought it was amusing how people kept coming up with all kinds of fun names for their big trials, and it remains amusing. The <laughs> main authors are listed as A. Wallenberg and Eric Simpson. I knew Eric Simpson a little bit when I was rotating, or when I was a fellow in Oregon. He's a great guy, and obviously a world-renowned atopic dermatitis expert. But this is obviously a large consortium of people, so thanks everybody for working on this. So... These are two phase three multinational randomized controlled trials. So tralokinumab blocks interleukin-13. Where's our pimping bell? Oh. You heard Sorry. it ring earlier today. So the pimping bell tries to highlight material that is testable, or you might ask your residents, or you might get asked if you are a resident. So in the opening paragraphs of this article, they point out that IL-13 is implicated in skin barrier dysfunction, skin inflammation, increased risk of skin infections, itch signaling, and epidermal hyperplasia. And they point out that we only have one biologic available for the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, or at least we did until now, which of course was our friend Dupilumab, which they say is an IL-4 receptor alpha antagonist. And for some reason, they don't say that it also blocks IL-13, but it does. I wonder if the pharmaceutical sponsor of this study was somehow involved in some of the wording. In any case, tralokinumab is exclusively an IL-13 blocker, and these multi-center randomized controlled trials included 1,600 patients. They were all adults, so I think it's important to point out that this is approved for patients age 18 and up, 
whereas dupilumab is currently approved for age 6 and up. These people all had moderate to severe topic dermatitis and were treated with tralokinumab as monotherapy, so they did not get to use topical steroids. They could just use moisturizers. The trials were one year long. There was an initial period that was 16 weeks, and then patients were re-randomized to placebo. So you could have been on tralokinumab for the first 16 weeks, and then maybe you ended up with placebo after that. Or they were randomized to an alternate protocol. So tralokinumab, they tried it every two weeks for the first 16 weeks. And then some of the patients were re-randomized to every four weeks instead. And some of them were randomized to placebo. And some of them just basically kept doing what they were doing until a whole year was out. And as you might guess, because we love dupilumab so much, and this has a similar mechanism of action, this medication worked and was safe. Hooray! So the approved dosing is 300 milligrams two times or every two weeks. Though interestingly, 30 to 50 percent of the responders who were switched to Q4 weeks after Q2 weeks maintained their response. Okay, so almost half of the people, if they were switched to every four weeks instead of every two, maintained response. And this is an especially interesting nugget, I think, Michelle. Mm-hmm. If you were a responder at week 16, and then you were switched to placebo, 20 to 50% of you maintained response for the rest of the year. You can't see the face I'm making. If you could hear it, it would be like, what? (laughs) I know. So super interesting. I tell patients and parents all the time, there's no cure for atopic dermatitis. But if you take a medicine for 16 weeks, and then you still don't have eczema six months later, I mean, I guess I'm not going to call it a cure because that would be jumping the gun. But keeping it in some kind of remission is pretty awesome. They um, had a couple ideas as to why this might occur. So they say, it has previously been shown that IL-13 expression is much lower in non-lesional than lesional atopic dermatitis skin. It is therefore possible that following a period of clear or almost clear skin achieved with trilokinumab, IL-13-mediated inflammation in the skin may have been extinguished, altering the natural disease course. Pretty cool. Yeah. It doesn't seem to work with dupilumab, I guess I'll say anecdotally, and I think our friend Peter Leo published one paper about taking people off of dupilumab after a year or two to see if they can maintain remission and hasn't been successful. But this is kind of exciting, especially for future research. Okay, so some specific metrics. So they were measuring, for example, the EASY score. So E-A-S-I, we've discussed before, stands for Eczema Area and Severity Index. And it's a measure of how bad your eczema is. And despite its name, it is not easy to calculate. But (laughs) it is a way to figure this out for clinical trials. So an EASY 50, for example, means 50% improvement in your EASY score. So at week 16, about half of patients achieved EASY 50. So 50% improvement in their easy score. If you talk about easy 75, that would be 75% improvement in your easy score. And the patients on trial, you can you add 25% of them reached that endpoint in the first big trial and 33% in the other. So a quarter to a third of people. And then easy 90, 90% improvement in your easy score was reached by 15% and 18% of people on trial, can And again, remember this is monotherapy, so they're not even using topical steroids. The medicine seemed to work pretty fast within one to two weeks for certain metrics like itch and sleep disruption. And it looked like it reached maximum effect around week 10. The graphs they show have a little bit of a plateau there, but they continue to improve. And just like with Zupilumab, seems quite safe. 
No, no particularly serious adverse effects, though, of course, keep your eye out for conjunctivitis. <laughs> because just like with Zupilumab, uh, about 10% and 5% of patients had that adverse effect, and then some people had a few more URIs. Hmm. So this is going to be compared to Dupilumab all the time, and it's also going to be compared to the JAK inhibitors, which are also approved. So here's some information for you. In the original Dupilumab trials that got Dupilumab approved, EZ75 at week 16 was achieved by about 50% of patients. And in another article that you're going to discuss today, Michelle, mm -hmm. uh, that was 65% of patients on Dupilumab reached EZ75. And I suspect that the difference was because in the original trial of dupilumab, they could not use steroids, whereas in the trial you're going to discuss, they could. So 50 yeah. versus 65% of people reaching EZ75 with dupilumab. So again, trilokinumab, those numbers are 25%, 33%. So of course, we can't compare them directly, different patient populations, blah, 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 but they're all big multi-center trials. And we're talking like 33% for trilokinumab versus about 50% for dupilumab. So dupilumab looks a little better from that regard. But there's been not discussion about it extinguishing the inflammation of atopic dermatitis for some sort of prolonged period. And an upadacitinib, for example, which we discussed in episode 59, if you want to talk about the endpoints there, their easy 75s were even more impressive. It's 70% and 80%. Their easy 90s were 50%. They even talked about easy 100 20% of patients on upadacitinib. And you're going to talk a little bit more about another JAK inhibitor today. So in some ways, JAK inhibitors, or at least upadacitinib in that trial, had better metrics. But again, it's tough to compare all these things directly. Importantly, from a practical perspective, JAK inhibitors are oral medications, whereas trilokinumab and dupilumab are shots. I have patients who hate shots, perhaps because those patients are nine years old, but there's plenty <laughs> of adults who also hate shots. So it's worth a thought. Jack inhibitors, I think, have more potential side effects, though. So they require a little bit of laboratory monitoring currently. And I think you're going to talk about a little bit more about some of the risks we should be thinking about with Jack inhibitors. So not a cut and dry approach here, but this is the data we have for currently. Also, from a practical perspective, JAK inhibitors, these new JAK inhibitors are approved for age 12 and up, whereas trilokinumab here is 18 and up. And for some reason, I don't know why, trilokinumab is produced in 150 milligram syringes. And the dose is 300 milligrams every two weeks, which means they have to give themselves two shots at the same time. I don't know why they don't just put it all in the same syringe, but there it is. This is not yet available, but should be like within the next few weeks. The brand name is Adbri. And the next practical question we think about is, how much is it going to cost? Well, we don't know how much it's going to cost, but we know how much some other stuff costs. And also, there's this institute called ICER. Have you heard of ICER? Yes, in a paper we read about something, but you're going to have to remind me what it means. It's a USA-based nonprofit, and it's called, ICER stands for the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Okay. And basically, they come up with what they think medications should cost based on the improvement that they give people. So they think that dupilumab should cost from $29,000 to $39,000 a year. What it actually costs is $42,000 per year, which isn't that much more than $39,000. 
and they think that Trilokinumab should cost about the same amount, 25000 to 35000 So we'll see how much it actually costs. And then the JAK inhibitors, um, we'll see how much those end up costing um, with their new approvals. Upatacitinib, the U.S. list price is currently $64,000. Baricitinib is 29000 which is less than half as much. Um, but perhaps there's not all JAK inhibitors are created equally. So that's the story with trilokinumab. I think that, again, just because I'm so familiar with dupilumab and stuff, probably dupilumab is the first thing I would do. And if patients don't respond, maybe I would switch to trilokinumab. Though since they have similar mechanisms of action, I don't really know why I would expect them to respond to trilokinumab if they didn't respond to dupilumab. Part of me wants to try trilokinumab on some patients and then see if after 16 weeks I can at least transition them to Q4 week dosing. And if they're still fine after another couple of months, maybe stop and see what happens. <laughs> so I might have that discussion with some patients. What about you, Michelle? Do you think you're going to be using some of these new medicines or at least I, I this one? I definitely think that, you know, I'm so excited that we're starting to have tools to treat some of the more severe things like atopic dermatitis and pruritus that really affect quality of life. Um, I know that the population of patients that could benefit from these medicines is broader than the population that could benefit from the biologics we initially started developing with psoriasis. There's more people affected with pruritic disorders and atopic dermatitis. So in a resource allocation becomes a question and cost, of course, also has to be considered. But it's very... Um, exciting to actually have some tools that work. And, you know, the more we understand about this and the better we can control it, the more we can improve these patients' quality of life. So I think that's a good thing. I want a brief tangent about cost. I think that, not dermatologists specifically, but really the whole medical community and maybe society does a pretty bad job of saying, hey, this is worth this amount of money per year. Like, um, improving somebody's atopic dermatitis is worth $50,000 a year. And whether it actually is or not, we can discuss. Obviously, we've had patients who are really severe and suffering badly from atopic dermatitis, and we could say, well, for sure, this is worth $50,000 a year. But if we can get it with method, better with methotrexate, which is $2,000 a year, but has more potential side effects and so on and so forth, we, we I don't think we do a good job of talking about the nuances there. And there's been a few things published on it, but there's been way more stuff published on here's a cool new drug and here's how great it works versus here's some cost effectiveness data. So I think it's a conversation that's potentially worth having. And then I'm sure you felt this tension in your own head, Michelle, when you have a patient like, uh, you know, a nine-year-old with mm -hmm. moderate to severe atopic dermatitis who failed topicals and can't do phototherapy or failed phototherapy or whatever. And you think, well, methotrexate might get them better and is way cheaper and probably they would do fine. But if my kid was nine-year-olds and had moderate to, moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, I would 100% want them to be on dupilumab instead. So it's hard for me to say, I think your kid should have this other thing because it's cheaper, but I wouldn't do it for my kid. And so when I have that tension, I generally use dupilumab. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a hard decision. The resource allocation thing is is a difficult piece to deal with, and knowing how to um, appropriately distribute these resources, when to reach for what therapy, you know, I think that's one of the big nuances of taking care of patients in this time when we are developing new therapies that are so effective, but are unfortunately also quite expensive. And you know, it's not a realistic thing to say that we can 
equitably give these medications to every patient that could benefit from them. So then we have to decide which patients are selected. And I think that applying the criteria rigorously for what really defines treatment failure, what really defines moderate or severe disease, um, thinking creatively and working with the patient's family as well to achieve like maximum utilization of other ameliorating mechanisms, including like appropriate emollient use and um, making sure that the environment is as non-irritating as possible. But it's hard. It's really hard. And, you know, I don't think that there is an answer for this, but you're right that, you know, we need to develop better ways to address this question and also to assess how these decisions are made and make sure that they're done as, in as equitable of a way as possible. Another new medicine that was approved recently is baricitinib for alopecia areata. And I'm going to talk about that one. So this is an article out of the New England Journal called Two Phase Three Trials of Baricitinib for Alopecia Areata. Authors include Brett King and Rodney Sinclair. So these were 1,200 adults, all of whom had a SALT score of 50 or more. And I didn't know what a score was until I looked into this. It turns out that French fries have a high SALT score. Oh, you kill me just like french fries. S A L T. I honestly forget what it stands for, but it's a marker of how severe somebody's alopecia areata is on their scalp. And it turns out it's very simple. Unlike the easy score, which is not easy, this one actually is easy. It's basically what percentage of their scalp hair is missing. So the scalp score ranges from zero, which means you have no hair loss, to 100, which means your scalp is completely bald. And then there are maps and stuff you can use to figure out sort of like based on this area of the scalp, there's like 50% on the side is missing. That's not actually like oh, that percentage of the scalp because the side of the scalp is like less percentage of the total hair, whatever. So if you're doing research, you know that stuff. But for our purposes, these patients all had SALT scores of 50 plus, meaning they were missing 50% or more of their scalp hair. And, and the SALT patient... is for severa, severity of alopecia. The reason it's tool. So it's severity of alopecia tool. The reason it's hard to know what that is, is I feel like the L should be lowercase because it's the second letter of alopecia. But that's what it is. Severity of, severity of alopecia tool. Thank you. Is it used only for alopecia areata or can you use it for other forms of alopecia? Um, I think it's standardized for alopecia areata. I'm not sure that it's applied to other types of hair loss, but I'll check. That was my impression as well, but yeah. not being a hair researcher, I'm not sure. So I'm patients nerd, in this study, sure. <laughs> these 1,200 adults were placed on placebo and then bar or baricitinib at two different doses, four milligrams or two milligrams daily. This was monotherapy, so they weren't also doing topical steroids or ILK or anything like that. The goal was to have a SALT score of 20 or less. So that means 20% or less of your hair has been lost. And apparently that has previously been validated as a meaningful outcome, quote, for patients with alopecia areata. So at week 36, which is nine months, so these things take a while, sort of like that vitiligo study with the ruxolitinib cream that we had just talked about. I think that also highlighted how long it takes because they had out outcomes at week 52, right? Which is like a year. So after nine months, this goal of a SALT score of 20 or less was achieved by 37% of patients on the four milligram dose, 20% of patients on the two milligram dose, and 5% with placebo. Hmm. So definitely more in the baricitinib group, but sadly, it doesn't look as dramatic as some of the JAK inhibitor results have been with other diseases like atopic dermatitis. So... 37% of people with a four milligram group got to SALT score of 20 or less. 
Adverse events were fairly mild, as we have noticed in other trials with JAK inhibitors, included acne, elevated CK, elevated lipids. And it's important to note that, again, kind of like this vitiligo trial we discussed, these patients were quite severe. So again, their SALT score was 50+. plus. Their current alopecia episode had to last at least six months, and it was up to eight years. On average, it was four years. So again, this gives hope to people who even had alopecia for years. We can get it back. Half of the patients had a SALT score of 95 to 100. So half of the patients had basically no hair left on their scalp. So this was a pretty severe group. They did point out that there was nobody with the, quote, diffuse pattern of alopecia areata. That was an exclusion criteria. And the adverse events were mild. So acne showed up in 6% of patients in the 4 milligram group, 5% of patients in the 2 milligram group, and then 1% in placebo. UTIs, urinary tract infections, were 5% and 8% in the baricitinib groups and only 1% in the placebo group. There was one myocardial infarction in a patient on the 2 milligrams of baricitinib who had, quote, risk factors for myocardial infarction. But we know from that old oral surveillance study that we discussed that uh, JAK inhibitors perhaps increase one's risk of cardiovascular outcomes. So whether or not this one in particular was related is going to be tough to say. Um, there was also one B-cell lymphoma that showed up in a 4 milligram patient. Again, whether or not that's related is tough to say. A lot of people had elevations in their LDL and their HDL. 25% had elevation in the LDL and 40% in the HDL. Don't know how clinically meaningful that is. Isn't HDL the good cholesterol anyway? Yeah, that's supposed to be. Yeah, but I think there have been studies that showed that medicines that just increase the number HDL don't actually affect outcomes. So I think, yeah, I think it's the stuff that you do that increases the HDL, like exercise and good diet and stuff. And moderate alcohol intake. <laughs> Not zero alcohol intake, moderate. Um, we're, we're tangential now. Don't yeah. Tito's and tan. Um, yeah. There were some CBC abnormalities that showed up in these patients, but they all normalized. There were no VTEs, which we have potentially seen in other JAK inhibitors. There were no opportunistic infections. They pointed out there were no GI perforations, which I... Uh, wasn't oh, sure of the relevance of that. I haven't seen any GI perforation signals in the other JAK inhibitor stuff we've reviewed, but maybe it shows up in other specialty maybe some literature. Other condition, yeah. So that's sort of the overall story of how it performed and the side effects. So decent, but not amazing, I would say, but uh, probably better than a lot of the other stuff we've tried, especially that these patients have tried. Baricitinib, of course, is a JAK inhibitor. It inhibits JAK1 and JAK2. Um, those signaling pathways are used by interferon and interleukin-15, for example, which are thought to play a role in the pathogenesis of alopecia areata. For monitoring, like other JAK inhibitors, it's a little hazy. They say check CBC and LFTs at baseline and, quote, periodically. Check lipids at 12 weeks and then, quote, periodically. You should screen for hepatitis and tuberculosis before starting. Um, and in our last episode, episode 86, we discussed recent CDC recommendations that people who are going to be immunosuppressed adults should get the shingles vaccine before they get immunosuppressed. Whether or not a JAK inhibitor truly counts as being immunosuppressed is potentially open to debate, but not in this study, but in other trials with JAK inhibitors, more people have gotten shingles. So I still think it makes a lot of sense to get people the Shingrix vaccine on that. So this is approved for alopecia areata. Uh, an age 18 plus as of June of 2022. The recommended dose is two milligrams, but you can go to four milligrams if you feel like it. For 30 days of the four milligram dose, it'll cost you $5,000.
That is expensive. Um, so the gastrointestinal perforation thing, that's a thing that happens with biologics and patients who have RA. And it's been reported with IL-6 inhibitors, but there have been a few case reports of JAK inhibitor-associated GI perforation, and they think it actually has to do with like downstream effects on IL-6 signaling. So that is new pimpable content there. So IL-6 and GI perforation in patients with RA, possibility for some participation with the Janus kinase inhibitors in that axis with IL-6. So Ooh, and one other exciting. thing. Oh yeah, go ahead. So SALT also stands for satisfaction and loyalty tracking, which is something they do at hotels. So that every time that I like hear SALT score, I have to like think not that, the other thing. <laughs> because of your other side gig and hospitality? No, one of my friends did hospitality and I helped her study in college. So we had kind Sounds of... Sounds like you picked up something weird. as well. I mean, I learned some things. She learned some things about dermatomes. It was fun. Well, this is a fairly exciting new drug that uh, addresses a need that has been poorly addressed by other medicines, but it's $5,000 for a month. And again, this is like stewards of the healthcare system type stuff. We as a society, I probably talked about this before, do a pretty good job of developing cool new drugs and then talking about how cool they are. We do not do a good job of discussing the costs and uh, whether or not they're worth it. And I'm not somebody who has alopecia areata or alopecia universalis. So I can read the studies that say it affects their quality of life, but I can't feel it for myself. And so we could have these discussions about is stuff like this worth it? Is, are the resources we're spending toward this worth it compared to re the resources, the same amount of resources we could spend to do something else? We could have those discussions. Nobody seems to want to. But we could, so at least I see our role as at least mentioning it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a hard thing for any doctor to like look at a patient that comes with a problem and says, you know, I'm suffering with this. And then to know that there's a potential solution, but that that solution has an opportunity cost that might be the treatment of a different condition that more people would agree is more morbid. Now, what an individual person's suffering means is so unique to that individual person that making value judgments based off that is very, very difficult. And I think that's one of the reasons why no one wants to confront this is that, you know, we have this question of just because we can, should we, right? Because we can treat this, should we? And it's an easy answer for things like ALL, right? Like who cares how much the medicine costs? It's saving a three-year-old's life. That's an easy thing to get people on board with, right? But for something that, well, we as dermatologists know it has a significant effect on people's quality of life, like alopecia areata, and um, you know, even to a certain extent, vitiligo, but more, more alopecia areata. We also know that in terms of danger to the person's rest of their life, we can't you know, really put the same weight on it as we would a diagnosis like ALL or, or even a morbid medical diagnosis like psoriasis. Vitiligo, you could argue about, you know, the lack of protection from UV radiation and increased risk of carcinogenesis. But with alopecia areata, it's harder. And, you know, I'm a hair loss, like, nerd, and I really care about my hair loss patients. I also know that I have hair loss patients who have severe alopecia areata who have decided that that's just part of who they are and they embrace that and they go on with their, their life and it doesn't impact them. And I have patients with alopecia areata who every day is about the fact that they don't have hair, you know? And it's one of those things that I think is a very difficult decision for what a physician to make on the behalf of another person. It's not an easy 
not an easy thing to talk through. And I think um, we need to probably develop different um, sort of metrics for how we choose these therapies and under what circumstances we use them. But it's a very difficult question to answer. Lack of transparency, another issue, et cetera. We don't have to talk too much about it right now. We've got to talk about other cool drugs and how cool they are. So this is an article out of the JAD 2022 by um, one of my favorite dermatologists in the whole world, April Armstrong, who's just amazing. I got to meet her in person at Fall Clinical recently, and she is just such a lovely human being and a great dermatologist and representative of our specialties. She's probably, uh, we haven't looked into it, sorry to interrupt, but she probably also gets the award for like most dermosphered author. I think she probably would. Yes. She's quite prolific in her publications. So she's the chief author. And then the, the corresponding author is Andrew Blauvelt. And this work um, was published in the JAD 2022. Importantly, it is sponsored by Bristol Myers Squibb, who makes Ducravacitinib. The trade name for Ducravacitinib is so tick to. Um, when I first saw that word written out, I was very irritated with it. I was like, why did they put so many consonants back together in this word? But then I realized that it's spelling out what it does. It's a TIC2 inhibitor. So it's a tyrosine kinase 2 inhibitor. So, so that actually is a helpful drug name. It helps you remember what the drug does. The purpose of the study is to compare the efficacy and safety of ducrevacitinib or so TIC2, which is an oral selective allosteric tyrosine kinase 2 inhibitor. What does it mean to be allosteric? It's binding, but not to the active site is what I believe that that means. But I shall have to confirm that. So it, I'll go on an info it's a quest regulatory. For you, Thank you. Please do an info quest. That's something I have residents do sometimes when they ask a question I don't know the answer to yet, or that I may have forgotten with all of the copious amounts of things we deal with in the day to day. And so they go on an info quest. It sounds so much more fun than go look it up, right? So they did the study. So tick two up against a premolast and placebo. In this study, which they called poetic, which is cute. Um, it's a 52-week double-blind phase three study. The two uh, co-primary endpoints were a POSI 75 and a static physician's global assessment score of zero or one, which corresponds to clear or almost clear. At week 16, they had significantly higher responses in the decravacitinib arm versus placebo or premolast. So decravacitinib had 58% of their patients reach POSI 75 versus a premolast, which was 35%, got to POSI 75 versus placebo, which was 12.7%, got to POSI 75. And POSI 75 roughly means your psoriasis is 75% better. Awesome. For the um, comparison of the physician's global assessment being clearer or almost clear, they also saw improved uh, results for the decrevacitinib versus the placebo and versus the... Um, versus the apremolast. So for the physician's global assessment, 53.6% of patients under crevacitinib got to clear or almost clear versus 32% on apremolast and 7.2% on placebo. So it looks like it does have better efficacy than some of the other orally available agents to treat psoriasis. Um, tyrosine kinase 2, TIC2, mediates signaling through interleukin of interleukin-23 as well as interleukin-12, interleukin-10, um, IL-22 and IL-6, and the type 1 interferons, interferon alpha and beta. So it's an important molecule in transmitting a lot of signals through the cells that can contribute to the formation of psoriasis or other, other inflammatory conditions. There are individuals who have loss of function genetic polymorphisms of TIC2. These patients have a lower risk of developing psoriasis and other immune-mediated diseases. 
And the authors say without substantial safety concerns, and that's technically true. I did look up to see what patients with TIC2 mutations are more subject to, and they are at greater risk for intracellular infections specifically and viral infections. So the first patient with a TIC2 mutation was uh, presented in the literature in 2006. It was an Asian gentleman who was 22 years old who had a TIC2 deficiency, um, autosomal recessively inherited, who also had hyper-IgE syndrome. Since that time, many more patients that have a TIC2 deficiency have been described, not all of them associated with hyper-IgE, but there is a potentially increased risk for intracellular bacteria such as mycobacterium, salmonella, brucella, and viral infections such as herpes virus. So things to keep in mind as these medications might be used more broadly. TIC2 is an attractive target for psoriatic therapeutics because of this. So ducrevacitinib is a selective TIC2 inhibitor, and it is being looked at for the treatment of things like plaque psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, and systemic lupus. And, and it's approved. Yes. So go ahead. I was just going to say one reason I wanted to talk about this is because I feel like there's new drugs being approved all the time for dermatology, and I was... Surprised to discover that Ducravacitinib or Sotic2 has, has been approved of like uh, October of 2022. So I think important always to talk about the trials that got things approved so we can decide whether we want to use it or not. And excitingly, I was right about allosteric. So in biochemistry, allosteric regulation is the regulation of an enzyme by binding an effector molecule to a site that is not its active site. So yay, because that was like, very old memory that I was dragging forward from my undergraduate cell and molecular biology degree. So this is a selective TIC2 inhibitor that is allosteric. So this particular medication does not bind at the active site. It binds at a regulatory site. And it's able to affect the expression of cytokines that would typically be triggered through its pathways. It had superior efficacy and very good tolerability. So we'll go into that a little bit. We talked about their co-primary endpoints. We also there was data collected for patient-reported symptoms, as well as quality of life and adverse events. So this kind of data was collected for all of the treatment arms. The adverse event uh, rates were similar across all three, but you can predict the kinds of side effects that occurred in the different groups. So for decravacitinib, the most common side effects were nasopharyngitis and upper respiratory tract infection. Not a huge surprise, potentially some viral vulnerability there, although there is um, good documentation that there was not an increased risk for poor outcome or infection from SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. So that's reassuring. Epremolast, as you would expect, had side effects of headache, diarrhea, and nausea. Not a big surprise there. Surprisingly, the placebo arm had the most side effects, which was interesting. So they had a little bit more, I think, activity of side effect over the weeks zero to 16 in the placebo group. So it was actually lowest side effect rate in the decravacitinib group, 2.1% versus 5.5% with placebo and 2.4% with epremolast. There was also one death in this study which occurred in the placebo group. I felt bad for being relieved that the death was in the placebo group when I was reading this because you know a person still passed away and that's very sad. But sometimes I do feel like random death events may happen in some of these trials and may put a uh, sort of cast a pall over a medication that maybe doesn't deserve it. So I was grateful that didn't cloud the in, the analysis of this data. I am looks sorry like, that person passed away. Uh, yes, it looks like psoriasis is listed as an adverse event. So maybe that's like worsening of your psoriasis. Okay, so maybe that's why placebo had the higher <laughs> event rate. I wonder. They also had um, pericarditis and cholecystitis. Um, that were reported in two decravacitinib treated patients. So something to kind of pay attention for if we start to see a signal for that. 
Um, discontinuations due to adverse events were lower with ducrevacitinib than placebo. Again, that may be related to efficacy, right? So if you're on a treatment that's working, you may be more likely to tolerate things than if you're on a treatment that isn't doing much. And then they had the one death in the placebo group. No clinically meaningful changes from baseline. Laboratories were observed in any of the patients through week 16. Of course, the one that you might expect to see in a patient with um, TIC2 inhibition, if it's kind of along the same pathways, which you see with the Janus kinase ones, would maybe be hypercholesterolemia, but they didn't see anything like that. Um, let's see. So they saw an increase of response through week 24 with the decrevacitinib arm. And they also noted that the patients had um, greater improvement in things such as scalp psoriasis and psoriatic symptoms on the decrevacitinib-treated arm. The increased rate of viral infections, including herpes zoster, had been documented in patients giving, uh, given other immunomodulatory agents. So they kind of list some of those. In this study, herpes zoster infections occurred at a low rate in the decrevacitinib arm. So they had 1.2 cases per 100 person years in the um, decrevacitinib-treated arm. All the cases were mild, localized, and followed a benign clinical course. None of them led to discontinuation. So as we discussed in a previous article, new CDC guidelines are give people the shingles vaccine if you're going to immunosuppress them as long as they're an adult but of any age. So jack inhibition seems good enough. So I would always recommend that my patients would get the shingles vaccine first dose before you start the medicine and then the second dose you know, afterward is probably fine. They do note that the trial is limited by a one-year duration. This is a chronic condition that might require lifelong treatment. So they note that longer-term analyses are um, appropriate and prudent to do. Racial diversity was limited greater than 98% of the patients self-reported as white or Asian. So generalizability may need to be looked at as well. But they found that decrevacitinib was well-tolerated. It was superior to placebo and apremilast. It didn't elicit any changes in laboratories that were characteristic of JAK1, 2, and 3 inhibitors. And the once daily dosage um, may be improving on patient uh, like compliance and adherence to therapy. So I think a lot of good information about this novel therapeutic. The oral medications for psoriasis versus the injectables, there's sort of a different playing field that you're dealing with. And it's different po patient populations generally as well. There are some patients that are just very uncomfortable with anything injected and are very happy to use a medicine that works well, but isn't a showstopper if they don't have to have an injection. Um, I think that there are other patients that don't mind having a shot and then not thinking about it for a period of time. And so, you know, of course, treating the individual in front of you is part of the art of medicine. What do you think, Luke? Well, I was going to say, if this were 15 years ago, I'd be pretty impressed. But in the age of biologics for psoriasis, it's actually not that impressive compared to all the things that we have. And they it beat a premolast, but this is a classic case of showing your new fancy drug can beat the crappiest thing out there. Cause Hey, I like a premolast. It has a lot of places where it's very useful. I meant literally crappy. People get diarrhea on it. Ah, but it don't bump them. No, but it's, uh, I mean, of all the approved things for psoriasis, it's like, now, I guess now there's ducravacitinib, but it's the only like orally approved thing. You can't really compare this to methotrexate, right? Because it's not FDA approved. But Apremolast just has unimpressed me anyways. And if you compare ducravacitinib to the biologics, uh, it's no question the biologics are more effective. So, for example, ducravacitinib in this study had a PASI 75 of 58%, whereas the top biologics have PASI 90s of around 70%. So they're way more effective. And a lot of them are shots like every two months. So would you rather take a pill every day or a shot every two months? As you say, there's some people who prefer a pill every day, but 
I feel like honestly, most people would prefer the shot every two months. Also, let's talk about cost. So, so tick two apparently is about $6,200 a month, which is about $74,000 a year, which is kind of roughly the same as the biologics. It's actually a little bit more expensive compared to Rizankizumab, Rodalumab, and Guselkimab, which are the top performing ones based on previous studies. But still, I would say it's fairly comparable and they vacillate all the time. So you're not really saving on cost by prescribing somebody Ducravacitinib either. So I think it's like you say, if the patient really just wants an oral medicine that works pretty decently well and doesn't have a lot of side effects, this is a pretty good one. And I mean, that's fairly high praise, works decently well, not a lot of side effects. Just in the age of psoriasis biologics, we've got really other great options. Yeah, for me, it kind of sits where uh, Enbrel is. And actually, if I, I was looking back at the original studies on Enbrel, and they got to about 50% of their patients got a posi 75 in 12 weeks with the Enbrel twice-weekly dosing. And I remember being a medical student and Dr. Paul Jure, who's a dermatologist in, in, Lubbock, in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas, who is very generous with this time with medical students, um, was allowing me and some other students to rotate with his clinic and got so excited talking to me about the new biologics that they were making for psoriasis and what an exciting time it was to be a dermatologist. And what's really kind of cool to think back on is that was sort of the beginning of my career as a dermatologist was that rotation because that's really where I fell in love with the specialty. How far we've come since that time where a 50% posi 75 was groundbreaking at that time. And now we're looking at posi 100s. You right. know, now we sneer at it. <laughs> so, you know, the game of treating psoriasis has changed so much in the past, you know, decade-ish, decade and a half. It's been a kind of big sea change in how we treat this condition. And uh, I think that what we've learned is that not only is the disease very, very heterogeneic, I think in the future, eventually we'll have IL-17 psoriasis and IL-23 psoriasis, and we'll pick the biologics that are appropriate for the patient based off of the cytokine profile of the condition. But, you know, I also think that we have different types of psoriasis patients. We have the ones that are sort of the better living through chemistry people, and then we have our crunchy granola patients, and we have everyone in between. It's nice to have a different um, option to offer some of these patients and also maybe understand a little bit more pathomechanistically about why the condition occurs and does what it does. So I'm itching to learn about what we can do about scabies. Oh, I'm glad you started that way because I want to make a very important public safety announcement. The um, COVID pandemic revealed to me that people will take medications in whatever form they are available if they think that they can benefit from them. Now, if you've ever treated an itchy patient, you know how desperate those patients can be for relief. And it's completely understandable. Itching is torture. There are many cultures in which the infliction of itching was a form of punishment. There were different shirts made out of hair or exposures to insects or certain like barks of certain tree that were urticants that would cause severe itching that were used in a punitive way. So itching is torture. I don't judge an itchy person for searching for relief. That totally makes sense. Wasn't that being it said, also one of Dante's circles of hell? I believe so. Why don't you figure out which level of hell while I'm telling this next part? Because I think that would actually be fun to talk about. So Spinosad is a product that is available for humans as a topical. It is available for dogs as a chew. Now, the reason this is extremely important to know is that ivermectin is also available as an oral medication for animals. In the horse paste, there's also oral tablets for humans. An itchy person might, I could presume, 
be so severely itchy they would be taking multiple things by mouth to try to stop the itching. The reason this is important is that spinosad is actually a PGP inhibitor, so that increases the risk of ivermectin neurotoxicity by inhibiting the secretion of ivermectin. So that will increase systemic drug levels and potentially cause things such as coma. So people should not take oral spinosad and oral ivermectin at the same time. Now, people should not be prescribed those two things because the form that is approved for humans is a topical. But we have learned that desperate people might try desperate things. And so those two medications at the same time in the same body could cause serious side effects. And so I would advise people to be aware of that and to um, educate proper patients about that if necessary. Now, we'll talk about Spinosad 0.9% as a topical, which is extremely safe. So this is casting no aspersions on the topical medication safety. Only people kind of outsourcing their derm care to the interwebs might potentially um, create a circumstance for themselves that would be less than desirable. So all of that said, we're going to review now an article from the JAD. This is by um, authors Jeffrey C. Seiler and Carrie W. Matert et al. out of West Palm Beach, Florida, um, Anaheim, California, Indianapolis, and Carmel. Carmel, Indiana. How delicious. Carmel, Indiana. So scabies, as we know, is a contagious skin disease. It is miserable to have. I wouldn't wish it on a dog I didn't like. Um, but they're, if they're they really... had it, then they could take the chewable. If they had, if the dog had it, then the dog, and dogs don't tend to get human scabies, but they do get an animal version of it, which is called Kylatiella. And you can tell Kylatiella apart from scabies because Kylatiella has hooks at the ends of its feet because it is dealing with hair, right? Whereas a scabies mite has these funny little like telescope looking ends. They look like the sort of like balancing end of a, um, like a stand for a tr like a tripod or something like that. It's a little like almost like a suction cup. And so they have completely different feet. And also Kylatiella have very beefy forelimbs, whereas scabies tends to be a little bit more demure. So if you're trying to tell the difference between scabies and Kylatiella, look for hooks and look for a, um, a mite that is swole. It spent some a time at the gym. Mite. It's a mighty mite because it's an animal mite. So um, no approved over-the-counter treatments for scabies exist. Sometimes people will try to use the over-the-counter treatments for things like head lice. Um, the permethrin concentration in those head lice therapeutics is not high enough to kill scabies in most patients, but it may lead to permethrin resistance, which we'll talk about here in a second. So spinosad is an insecticide that's been derived from the fermentation of a soil acinetobacterium that has the cutest name. It's Sacropolyspora spinosa, which is why this is called spinosad. So if you are a resident trying to learn that name, it's in there. Sacropolyspora spinosa is the source of spinosad as an actinobacterium of the soil. So in this paper, they looked at two controlled clinical studies to evaluate the safety and efficacy of 0.9% spinosad topical suspension to eradicate scabies. For the study, they did a very interesting method, which I actually understand why they did because of the way scabies works, but they had to really think about their study design. So their study patients were including the index subject, which was the youngest household member with active scabies. 
and then up to five other members in each household, which makes sense because household contacts can reinfect people if you don't treat them all at the same time. A problem we've all run into when you see one person who is the patient that has the scabies and they have a household full of other people who are also infected or I should say infested. And so you have to figure out how to get all of those patients treated or else the index patient will become recolonized almost certainly. And so they applied those, but the vehicle or the spinosad once daily and the primary efficacy was the percentage of index subjects with complete cure on day 28. And they found that spinosad was superior to the vehicle in terms of the percentage of index patients achieving that complete cure on day 28. So 78% of patients in the spinosad arm versus 40% of patients in the vehicle arm. And they'd get, they get to why perhaps applying the vehicle might have helped in a second. And that's also very interesting because I was surprised that 40% of patients in the vehicle arm cleared. Were you surprised by that? I was surprised by that. I thought that was kind of kind of fascinating. So one of the reasons they thought that might be is that the mites that infest humans well are female, and those are the ones that burrow and lay eggs. The male mites just kind of crawl around, look for a little lady friend, you know, have a little fun, move on to the next place. But living they're their best scabies yeah, life, living their best scab their best single scabies life. They don't have to go live in the burrow. They don't have to take care of the eggs or sweep up the skibola. They're just there. So applying the vehicle actually may physically debreed some of the male scabies mites, which might decrease the breeding population. And so actually just putting on a topical potentially might have some benefit. Um, the authors touched on the possibility of emerging permethrin resistance for scabies mites, which is something that we need to think about, and that may be con contributed to by the um, use of over-the-counter products with a lower concentration of permethrin by people who are trying to treat the infestation at home. Um, Spinosad is in a chemical class of insecticides that's derived from the fermentation process of this bacteria. And fortunately, spinosad is poorly absorbed through the skin, so we don't really have to worry so much about the systemic toxicity. Um, the toxicity that can be experienced by dogs when they eat it, when they eat the medicine, because they eat the medicine, I think that they make it smell like liver or something, so the dog will eat it. But they can have decreased appetite, lethargy, diarrhea, coughing, and polydipsia. Um, they can also sometimes have, if they've had too much of the medication, erythema, salivation, pruritus, and trembling. So it starts to sound a little bit more like an organophosphate pesticide at high in ingested doses. But fortunately, it is very poorly absorbed through the skin. And so systemic toxicity with humans with proper use is not likely. Um, it was approved in 2011 to help treat first head lice. And then it got secondarily the approval for the therapy of scabies mites. And it works by- In 2021. By, in 2021. Because of this trial. Mm-hmm. And so the spinosad works um, by causing excitation of the nervous system in insects. It alters the function of the nicotinic and GABA-aminobutyric acid-gated ion channels, or GABA-gated ion channels. And so this is um, partially responsible for its efficacy as well as its safety. And so then the patients were divided, as we talked about, into by households. They were randomized to vehicle or to the spinosad with the active ingredient. And they did the single application over the entire body from the neck to the toes, including the soles of the feet and to the scalp, if balding or hairline, temples and foreheads. That was interesting to me as well, because adults don't tend to get colonized with scabies mites above the neck. And so we rarely treat adults above the neck with uh, scabicides, but this was a 
particular part of this protocol. And the patients were then instructed to rub the steady drug into the skin, followed by a 10-minute waiting period before dressing, and then they didn't shower or bathe for at least six hours. They defined a clinical cure as having all signs and symptoms completely resolved, including the burrows, inflammatory or non-inflammatory lesions, and pruritus, and, a, and or a microscopic cure, which was defined as the microscopic or dermoscopic demonstration of absence of bites, eggs, and or skibola, and a negative dermoscopy result for burrows, or both. So, And I was impressed that they kind of had an equivalence between microscopic and dermoscopic, but I, in this condition, I feel like it's entirely appropriate because I would actually argue that it is easier to find a mite with dermoscopy than it is with microscopy unless you used your dermatoscope to find your biopsy site. Because an adult human that's healthy typically only has about 12 adult mites on them at one point of time. So actually finding a mite without the aid of a dermatoscope, I think would be very difficult. So they had 551 patients, index and non-index, that they randomized to this study. And they had only um, individual ex like safety events experienced by one subject each were abdominal pain, back pain, burning sensation, cough, headache, neck pain, decreased weight, all of which occurred in two subjects. And the only events that were considered by the investigator to be related to the spinocyte were the burning sensation on the skin or the dry skin sensation. So I was very encouraged by these results. I thought that it showed a lot of safety and efficacy. And I think so long as people don't go kind of nuts and try to take the spinocyte tablets that are made for dogs together with oral ivermectin, this is a very safe and efficacious drug and will help us treat these patients that have treatment resistance a little bit easier. The single application makes it a little bit um, less difficult to use as well as you know, using permethrin requires two applications because the permethrin is not sufficient to kill the eggs, only the mites. So this is supposed to kill the eggs too. It would seem that way. So 78% pretty good, but it's... I kind of want it to be better. Well, but you have to think about what they're requiring for that to be the cure, right? Because all the signs and everything have to go away. How many of your scabies patients are completely done itching by a month? Zero percent. Right. Maybe I should keep, maybe I should use this after all. So, you know, the fact, and I didn't see that they had a provision for topical steroids or anything to settle the post-scabetic pruritus, which as you and I both know, and everybody who's treated scabies patients know, you also have to grow the dead mites out of your skin. So even though they're dead, if they're in the burrow, they're still antigenically stimulating your immune system. And your immune system is still pissed that they're there. And there's no cure for that besides time, Right. Yes, and so this sounds I was, like a conversation both you and I have had with our patients. Yes, many, many, many times. So I was actually quite impressed with the efficacy, and I think that it's a quality therapeutic to offer. Um, I know that there is, I think, a cost difference. So um, let's see. It's not what too is bad. Our... It's $75 for a bottle, which I assume That's is enough for a single application. Yeah. The brand name is Natroba. Natroba, yes. Now that is a discounted price. So if you have the non-discounted price, it can be up to almost three hundred dollars. Hey, I was um, looking at GoodRx. Yes, that's that's with the coupon, but it's it's still you know that does mean the patients can get the medication typically at that cost. So, and Michelle, then I have a confession for you. What's your what's your confession? My first line treatment for scabies is off-label. What is it? It's oral, oral ivermectin. ivermectin. Yeah. And so long as you have um, not got the bad luck to have a patient that has a um, like either 
compound um, loss of heterozygosity of the enzyme that, that metabolizes that drug or the very rare case where they would have a homozygous deficiency of that. I think it was the ABCA1 or something like that, Gene. Yeah, we that. talked about that on the podcast. Yes, we did. So um, so long as you're not in that circumstance, I think that's also a very safe way to treat the, the patients. It's got better likelihood of therapeutic adherence because it, as we've discussed many times, it is easier to swallow a pill than to cover your entire body surface with a cream. Um, the uh, highest price I'm finding on permethrin looks like, I don't know where these people are buying their permethrin, but um, 150, but then the um, kind of discounted price was down to 15 for the permethrin. But, you know, of course you have to think about two applications. You also have to think about compliance and the possibility of permethrin resistance. I think both are good therapeutics. I think that, um, you know, a variety of circumstances may dictate how you decide how to treat each patient. Many people I think will go through permethrin first. And if that's fail, failed in the patient, then you might try a different therapeutic. There's lots of different ways to practice. 20 tabs of ivermectin costs 21 bucks, according to GoodRx. Also in the podcast, like way back in the day, in episode five, we discussed a study where they treated the entire population of Fiji with ivermectin because scabies were so that. rampant there. They just gave everybody ivermectin, whether they had scabies or not. Um, and they like were very few side effects and it was like headaches and stuff. And yeah. then in episode 14, we also discussed that ivermectin was safe in babies. So these are reasons why I tend to prefer it. Most I, It's mostly for the adherence thing. Like if I had scabies, I would want to just take some pills. Yeah. But it's nice that this is out there and um, approved for ages four and up now. And that will do it for this bonus episode. Thanks so much for hanging out with us while we re-explored some of the drug approvals from the past. We, of course, want to thank our institutions. Thank you to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. And thanks, of course, to all the members of Team Dermosphere, a collection of highly motivated and excellent medical students who help us out with the podcast. They include Morgan Dykeman, Guy Kusecki, Eleonora Marcacci, Michael Birdsall, Angie Huang, and Lara Dela Cruz. Thanks so much for everything you do. One thing you do is keep our social media accounts moving forward. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We also have a website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has links to all of the original articles that we discussed, as well as our entire archive. It's also a good way to reach out and get in touch with us. Also, we recently have more video content available on a platform called ViewMedi and now on YouTube as well. It's on youtube.com slash Dermosphere podcast. You can find us there. Thanks to everyone who helps us out with that. And we'll see you guys hopefully when Michelle is feeling better in two weeks. Hi. See you then. Hi. Oh, here's my daughter. She's filling in for Michelle. Say hi, Mary. Hi. How old are you? Five and a half, almost six. And what do you want to be when you grow up? Artist. Wonderful. We'll see you guys then. Maybe Mary will be an artist. 